Hello and welcome to Silencing Women in the Name of God. I'm Devery Alice. Today we've got Kira. Now I'm really excited about this one because the interview was amazing, um, but I think a lot of you are going to see yourself in Kira. Uh, Kira and I were mission companions actually, and she was a rule follower, but it was more than that. I followed rules. Kira was, in her words, scrupulous. It was heavily tied into her identity, to how she had functioned her whole life. And as faith became an issue and she started to step away from the church that she was raised in, this scrupulosity has has really plagued her and has been very difficult for her to overcome as she tries to figure out for the first time, really, what the rules are for her instead of depending and counting on an organization or a religion to hand those to her. I think this is going to be a very familiar story to some of you, and I can't wait to hear what you all think. Silent, she was silent, but she'll carry her pain no more. Hi, Kira. How are you? Doing well. How are you, Debbie? Oh, I am good today, I think. I always have to pause. Heaven forbid I just say good, but I am always like evaluating. Am I good? Yes, I am fine today. Slight headache, but all is well. All is well. Ah, came off of a couple of migraines days, which you, I know, deal with pretty, like a lot. Yes, I just had a friend visit, like a college friend. It was my first time in my married life where someone came and stayed with us that wasn't family. And we went to San Francisco for an adventure, and I had a migraine that day and ended up throwing up in some bathroom in San Francisco, and that wasn't fun. That's oh, pretty bad migraine. I'm so sorry. But I'm feeling better now, but I'm, I'm sorry you're dealing with a headache today. Uh, yeah, headaches and migraines are, like, not even the same thing. <laughs> like, they're not. No. It's like when people say that they understand depression because they get sad, and I'm like, oh, honey. <laughs> It's not, again, not the same thing. Oh, I'm so sorry. And throwing up in random bathrooms is always my, that was my favorite pastime when I was pregnant. It's the only way I could get through it was making jokes about where I would throw up that day because it was my only like course of sanity was (laughs) making jokes about it. Oh, anyway. Okay. So Kira and I actually met on our LDS missions. We were both missionaries. Uh, We were companions, which means we were, uh, paired together, you live together, you do everything together except shower together. That's really like you go to the bathroom by yourself, you shower by yourself. Other than that, we were together. So we were separate first, beds. Separate beds. That's, important That's true. Detail. We didn't sleep. <laughs> this is a fair <laughs> detail to bring up. We did not sleep together. Um, but so we did sleep right next to each other, like we were in an episode of I Love Lucy. So still, uh, you know, um, we had. So first we were in a group of three, which is not super common, but there were three of us. And we were in the sign language mission together, which was comical as I did not speak sign language. You had no experience in that either, right? Before you went in? I had studied sign language in, at BYU. Oh, Brigham Young you had. How convenient. How convenient. Did I ever tell you what was said to me on that phone call when they sent me over there? No. Oh my gosh. So that's, so of course you had. So the uh, president of the mission field calls me up to tell me that I'm moving areas and I'm getting uh, new companions. 
And uh, so he's like, sister, you're going to be going into, you know, the sign language machine. And I was like, um, uh, president, I don't, I don't know sign language. And he, he was like, you'll be fine. And that was like all he said. And like the phone hung up and I was like, oh, okay, great. Awesome. Cool. So uh, I'm glad you, yeah, I went into completely blind. I had never like. I didn't know any sign language at all. So that was a super kind of bonding experience, I think, for us for multiple reasons. And then we ended up back together again, um, my last six weeks on the mission. So a total of 12 weeks together, right? Is that right? I don't remember. I didn't count the... Was it only one transfer we were together my with Sister Horn? time with you? I, I think so. I thought so. Maybe not. Was it two? Oh man, I don't. I don't know. remember. I'll have to look at my missionary journal. Let's see what dates I put. <laughs> I love it. Of course, you have those. I love it. Um, <laughs> it's just the collection of letters to my family, and uh, I didn't actually keep a journal. What are you serious? Just you saved the letters I wrote. Not really. This no. surprises me. This surprises me. So for for the listeners that are confused as to why I'm surprised by this, let's give some background here. Um, so <laughs> Kara is an amazing person. Uh, and she is also, though, a, a rule follower to the max, which is what we're actually going to talk about today in her religious journey and her way out and some of the struggles with that. Um, but a, a mission life has a lot of rules, which we're also going to get into. And one of those was journaling so this is why I'm like wait what what do you mean you don't have a journal was that really like a white bible rule well we called our rule our book our little book of rules the white bible even though it's not a bible so it's probably kind of sacrilegious but Uh, you know what I don't actually know and so we're gonna trust you because between the two of us knowing what the rules were we're gonna go with your (laughs) your knowledge on this and maybe it probably was not an actual rule Oh, that's. I guess I interpreted it as like a gospel suggestion, you know, like we're so we're all supposed to journal missionary or not. Right. We're keeping a record of your lives is something that's encouraged and it's super valuable practice. But I think I counted my letters as my journaling. I made intermittent other entries, but I didn't count it among the things the to-do list that you're supposed to do every single day. Okay. It wasn't on my to-do list. Well, then it definitely was not in, I'm going to call it the white handbook to be proper here. It definitely was not <laughs> in the white handbook then. Otherwise it would have been on your list. I am sure of it. So, okay. I'm going to introduce you really quick with your bio here, and then we're just going to jump right in. So who is Kira? That is a question that I'm going to ask you. And that is a question that she's exploring right now as she processes leaving a religion that had become a huge part of her identity. Some of the roles she fulfills include daughter, sister, wife, mother, neighbor, friend, volunteer, and teacher. She's passionate about community service and literacy. She appreciates a variety of beauties, including inspiring lyrics, lilting melodies, a well-crafted sentence or paragraph, paintings and sculptures that stir the soul, and the combination of music and dance never fails to move her to tears. Her happy place is a shady spot by the river with a good book. Let me tell you what I really like about this, this bio here. Um, one, it really does speak to who you are, um, like a soul level, which is beautiful. Um, but I happen to know that you've done some pretty amazing, uh, very specific things within your community and um, within you know your career before you started having 
kids and decided to stay home. And I love that your focus in here was less about the boxes that you've ticked, because I think that's what we all tend to do, and more about who you really actually are and what lights you up and what just encompasses the reality of you as opposed to the checklist of things. And so um, I just wanted to let you know that I, I really appreciated the way that you approached it and I thought it was beautiful. So thank you. Yeah. Okay. Miss Kira, talk to me about growing up Mormon for you because everyone's experiences are different. Um, you were a rule follower always um, and kind of thrived Definitely. in an, an <laughs> obedience centered environment. So just kind of uh, set us up for where we're going. Like what, what kind of things did you experience growing up? Um, where did you excel and why? Uh, you know, all, all of, all of these, these beautiful building blocks for where we're headed. Well, I am the oldest of initially four children and then my family adopted three more. So the oldest of seven total, that was a big part of my personality, right? Birth order theory or whatever. So whether it's birth order or the culture of my home or the culture of the church, there's so many factors and how can you identify which one was most significant, but, and part of who I am and how I'm built, I don't know. Following the rules was really a safe place for me that as the oldest, you're supposed to set the expectation or the example for the younger siblings. So that was something I really felt either culturally from the bigger society or from my parents specifically wanting me to be a good sister and a good example. And then it was just really reinforcing for me also. Like all my parents had to do was look at me, like give me a sideways look. And I was back mm. where I was supposed to be doing what I was supposed to be doing which wasn't super good for my relationship with my younger sisters because I like mm -hmm. felt this pressure to get the house clean if I was babysitting and then I was kind of bossy and rude to them. Anyway, you know, we all learn and grow, but, but yeah, being obedient <laughs> to mom and dad, being obedient to church leaders was super important to me and really reinforcing. Let's... And I loved teachers like liking me I liked teachers liking me which ended up yeah my a good friend said oh everyone hated you in fourth grade and I was like what I was totally oblivious but I guess I was too teachers petty in fourth grade and either she and everybody or just she really didn't like that <laughs> I'm not sure which well you were getting your you know your feedback from the adults so of course that's what you were focusing on and that made you so happy that you didn't notice anyone else being unhappy. Like yeah. that makes total sense to me. That makes total sense to me. Um, when did she tell you that? Was that a recent thing? Um, I don't, maybe in junior high or high school, oh, we were okay. closer. She was just like friends yes, then. And she was like, you. Oh, everyone hated you in fourth grade. <laughs> kind of like the revelation of that. I was a difficult missionary no. to work with on my no. mission that I didn't, I wasn't, <laughs> I didn't realize that either. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> Listen, guys, I, oh man, I was wondering, I was like, is she going to bring this up? She probably is. Uh, so as you guys know, I do pre-interviews with people and we were talking and I mentioned that she was, had a reputation for being a difficult missionary to be with because I honestly thought you knew and I <laughs> ripped the rug out from under her and I don't know how many days I ruined, but I felt so, so, so bad. But it wasn't no days ruined because you're a bad person or you were mean. 
it oh good because <laughs> I really was like oh my gosh I try to be so careful and I just bleh. um no so because yeah it wasn't anything about the personality as far as like someone that you could just sit and talk to and laugh with or whatever it was everything about what we're talking about today which is it is difficult to be in an environment where you're with a person 24 hours a day who is very rigid and unbending um but yes. you I think it's actually kind of funny that you brought it up right then because it actually is really similar to what I was saying about like you were getting praise from the teachers so you didn't notice anything else and I think it was the same thing like you oh, were getting yeah. so much satisfaction from feeling like you were yeah reinforcement from not only the leaders but I think you were feeling that reinforcement in your definition of God at that point in your life right like totally. you felt very holy I would imagine and very like in not like in a better than way but just in a like satisfactory I'm doing what's right kind of way yeah yeah so it does I think it did put blinders on because you were just so happy about how well and in my mind everyone was supposed to be striving for this ideal that I was also striving for so we were unified in striving for that level of obedience that was my view of the world you know of of our our little mission microcosm that was my view and the rest of us were just trying to like not drown I think <laughs> like Kira's up there. I think there are a few others like, like me. <laughs> oh man, yeah, yeah. I did, I did, I did say that, and I did feel really bad. <laughs> okay, so no. I think it shows kind of <laughs> what. Well, I just think it shows kind of a continuity of that aspect of my personality yeah. and or the cultural environment that I was in that. That continued, you know, from early elementary school days into adulthood that complying, you know, having, having a handbook that tells you what to do was, it's really convenient. It's really nice sometimes to have like the, my mission was one of the most comfortable times of my life in that way, because from the day was laid out for me. Mm. I knew exactly what I was supposed to do. I mean, some of those little decisions about where to go and how to fill the time, that got a little tricky, and I'm sure we'll talk about that. But, but you know, for, in the morning you get up and you study and you pray and you whatever, like it was outlined for me. And then going back to like college life when it's all up to you, that was like super challenging. Right. Right. Am I jumping ahead too far? No, no, no. We will, I will just okay. pull us in and out and back, and I want you to just talk freely. So, yeah, no, you're doing great. Um, so the the laid out thing. So let's let's. So you're at home, and you are you're the oldest. You are getting praise for being obedient because, of course, listen. What parent does not want a kid that's obedient? Like it's right. super. It's super easy, and it's like really nice to not have that stress and I may or may not tell a story about um my daughter in this later because I I really forced her out of that role because I didn't want her in it because I could I knew how unhealthy that it could become uh but it was really hard for me to force her out of it because listen it made my life a lot easier when I didn't have to fight her because I was fighting I was fighting the other one you know but um so we may that may open up later we'll see but um so you're getting all this reinforcement and then you are growing up LDS, which although doesn't have as many rules as the actual mission rules, still 
has a lot of rules. So, so a lot of rules. Yeah. yeah. Talk to us about like that, that crossover and how it, how did the things that you were hearing, because now you're standing in the future, right? You're looking back, you're able to see things a lot clearer. How did all of these things that you were learning integrate in um, to you, your personality, your belief systems, and whether you feel that those were healthy or not? Does that make sense? Or is that too big of a question? Can you repeat it one time? Yeah. So you have this natural inclination that's growing, right? Of um, this is good. Rule following is good. Obedience is good. I get praise. And now you're growing up LDS and you're having this very rigid because LDS is a, is a very high demand religion. So it's, it really, when it's being followed properly as prescribed, not properly, that was a poor word as prescribed, uh, it's got a lot of rules. It's very rigid. So how did you incorporate all these things that you were learning into your, your personality, your way of being? And now that you are looking back, were these things positive or negative in their influence on you? Well, just like anything, I think there's both, right? Yeah. Positive and negative. But when I, um, I remember growing up, like the scriptures that say, be perfect, even as your father in heaven is perfect, right? So there's a continual reinforcement that we are supposed to be striving for this really unrealistic ideal. Mm -hmm. So I think that aspect was, can be harmful, depending on someone's personality. And for me, it was really, really harmful. Yeah. I, I feel like looking back, you know, that I never felt worthy. Yeah. Um, you know, I would go to bishops. We would have um, every six months, we would have an interview with the leader of the congregation, the bishop. And I always remember feeling like so intimidated by that interview. Of course, it's like a middle-aged man sitting in a suit and tie across a desk from a young girl. And I'm feeling like he can see into my soul and he knows whether I'm good or not. And it, that was super intimidating and really challenging. And so, and then also to like gain the privilege of going to the holiest house, the temple, and to either do, we would go and do, like from 12 years old, we were invited to go do baptisms for people who have died. But you had to go through this interview process where the leader of the congregation judges your worthiness based on a set of questions that you answer about whether or not you're honest and whether, you know, all of these things. And I, oh, those were so hard for me. But I, but I really strived. I was always striving to be honest, to be obedient, to be doing the things I was supposed to be doing. But I remember even at eight years old, like when we, that was the age at which we were in the culture of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, children can be baptized, right? And so I remember at eight years old, trusting in the promise that my sins would be washed away, all of my mistakes. And I was like, oh, that is beautiful. And then you're clean before God. And I remember that day getting baptized and coming up out of the water and feeling so good, like so clean and so like, oh, that was wonderful. It was so beautiful. And on the way home from that beautiful day, I totally yelled at one of my sisters, <laughs> you know, because they were bugging me or whatever. I don't remember what it was. And I remember just being crushed by that. Like I already ruined it. <laughs> I wish I could have died after I was baptized so that I could go to heaven. Like that weighed on me so much until later, like years later, I learned some, the idea that, you know, take partaking of the sacrament, the bread and water 
um, emblems of Jesus Christ, you could renew that covenant and renew the cleansing. And that was really a beautiful idea for me and something that I carried into my mission and tried to teach people that this cleansing process is a continual thing, a continual opportunity. And I think that that is something that is beautiful and healthy. Um, and I wish I had known it when I was eight, <laughs> you know, Yeah. but that the pressure of like being perfectly obedient and, and like being worthy to take that bread and water, that was a constant struggle for me also, like trying to determine whether or not I was and always feeling like I wasn't. Right. This is so crazy because I'm sure you saw my mouth like hang open, like your baptism story is identical to mine. I, and I've shared, it, I think on one of a different one that I recorded, but yes, like coming up feeling so clean and so pure and being determined to like, this will be how I will be forever. And then I yelled at my brother in the car on the way home. Granted, he was purposely pestering <laughs> me to get me to sin. Probably, I, you know, I don't remember clearly, but I have no doubt I was bragging about how clean I was, not realizing that that probably was a sin in and of itself. But like, that's probably <laughs> what was happening. And so I yelled at him, but no, just like I was crushed, like just crushed with exactly the thought that you just shared of that I had already ruined it. And that is really sad to me to think now as an adult, looking at an eight-year-old child to have that weight on their shoulders, right? Of like, you were perfect, but oh, now it's got like, you screwed it up. And yeah, I think I was the same in that I didn't fully understand uh, the church's teachings around the idea of sacrament and and being able to, yeah, get that back and all of that. So, but no, that was crazy. Like, as you started going, I was like, Oh my gosh, no way. Yeah, like identical, identical stories. So, okay, I want to go back and ask you a couple of questions about some of the things you said. And I'm scribbling notes over here because you were saying so many really good little blips that I wanted to get into more. Um, so you talked about sitting in front of a older man in a white shirt and a tie and you're a young girl and thinking that he could. So, okay, let me just set this up for anyone who isn't familiar. Um, so there are worthiness interviews starting, I mean, really at eight, cause you're interviewed for baptism. And then I feel like there's a little bit of a break and you then the interview start up again at 12, um, because you're being interviewed. Maybe 11 now. Cause oh, they, yeah. Cause they, oh, I really had a hard time with that policy change. I'm not going to lie. Uh, sorry. They, they let the 11 year olds go to the temple now, which is a whole thing that I could talk about for a while. Um, so 11 years old, it starts back up and you're, you have young men and young women going into a room alone with an older male who is asking them questions uh, about, you know, do you believe in God? Do you believe in the prophet? Uh, to sexual questions sometimes. And so you have this idea of being perfect. You go into this room with this man and you feel like he can see into your soul. Why? Why do you feel that way? Well, growing up, I was taught that they had the authority from God, right? The authority to act in the name of God, to kind of stand in for the Lord, to give us assignments that come from the Lord that we're supposed to accept. And so I really felt like he had this, you know, priesthood power and that somehow it allowed him to discern or that he had the power of discernment to see if someone is guilty or innocent, right? Like worthy or unworthy. And so I felt judged 
right? You're being judged. He stand his role. One of his roles is to stand as a judge in Israel, and I'm one of the people that he has responsible responsibility or stewardship over to judge. Yeah. So that was why I felt like he might have the power to see into my soul. <laughs> yeah. So this is, it's really important because one, I think that people need to understand the stakes here, right? Because stakes are not ever real. Stakes are perceived. Like whatever we perceive the stakes to be is what the stakes are. So I want the stakes to be understood. Like you are really feeling like if you tell this person the slightest white lie, right? That this person will know because I mean, it's almost like God is standing there with you, right? Like he's being seen or shown through the power of God, um, something that a normal person would not have seen. And I know, and I've said this on other recordings, but there will always be people, and I really want to stop this from happening because I think it's a huge problem. I think it's a huge problem in all communities, but I see it a lot um, in religious communities. And I think it's because it's driven by desperation. And that is that they will listen to someone like you say, I really felt like he could see into my soul and they will brush it off as, oh, well, I never believed that. Like, that's just crazy. But it's not crazy because that what you're saying to me is exactly the doctrine. Like they, it is, it is said in almost those exact words, right? That the bishop is called of God and he has special powers of discernment and he will be able to access and like you are a part of his flock, part of like something that, yeah, he's been called to um, preside over. And just because one member of the congregation didn't take that as literal and another person in the congregation did doesn't mean we get to write that ideology off as not potentially harmful. That's something that I've really come to is that to really respect, there are so many different beautiful paths in life and so many ways, right, to happiness and to joy and so many ways to live your life and so many ways to interpret and experience even the same environment. Like my sisters and I were raised by different parents, right? We had a completely different experience in our home, and it's the same in the church, in a church or a religious organization. So much of who we are impacts our environment, and so much of our environment impacts us, and that balance is different for every person. And so other people may not have had, like you said, a problem with that doctrine or that feeling, but it, I definitely internalized it 100%. And I have a little yeah. bit of OCD tendencies, and mm-hmm. so, yeah, I was... I believed things 100% that I was taught and internalized them and really, really strived to be who I was supposed to be within that paradigm. Exactly. And I think it's, it's significant and important and so beautiful if we could start to adapt this type of practice where, yeah, instead of just brushing things off, we can take into account all of the things or assume they're there, right? If we don't know that they're there. Um, such as, yeah, like OCD type tendencies. I have a tendency to not necessarily believe everything I'm heard on the level that I ended up believing it on, but it was what I do have in spades is a overall desire to be good. And I've always had that. And so it was easier. Well, it wasn't easier. It was necessary for me to set down my questioning and pull stuff more in, in the same way that you pulled it in. I don't think I, and 
I didn't pull in a lot to the degree, but I, I pulled it in probably 70 to 80% of what you pulled in, not because that's who I am as like, a um, like how I, how I bring in information now is very different, but at that point it was overridden by my inherent desire to be good. So if this is what I had to do to be good, then I'm going to put down my questioning because the questioning is bad because we were taught definitely that questioning is bad unless it's safe questioning at which point go ahead, <laughs> you know? Oh goodness. Okay. So I want to talk about this concept of be perfect. I want you to lean into this a little bit more. Um, I really think that this scripture drives Mormon culture to an insane degree. Um, I think it hits every single aspect of Mormonism from how we dress to how, what we drive to where we live. I think that it has bled out into far more than it was ever meant to, but I would love to know for you, um, what this, what this created, like, what did this breed inside of you? Well, it's something that I still fight against, or I'm really having to like unravel this from me because it became so much a part of the core of who I am that I was I would agonize over decisions like whether it's how I was built and it's definitely influenced and encouraged by my culture but I struggle with procrastination and indecision because I'm trying to make the right choice right because there is the right way to live there's the right church is how I was raised. There was one true church. So one way to God. And so that really, I really internalized that there was like the right direction to turn on a street. There was the right section of the right class to choose in college. Like it took me hours to plan my schedule because I was so concerned about making the right choice because your life is impacted by the people that you meet. Right. And who knows I might meet my future eternal companion in a class. And so choosing the right class is like, has eternal significance. And I like, it sounds silly and people can laugh at it because it is, it kind of is ridiculous, but that really was what my thought process was and really took hours for me to try to feel out and choose what was the right choice in I didn't take it so far as grocery shopping or anything like that. You know what I mean? But it does impact like a little bit. You know, if I'm, if I know that I'm supposed to eat healthy, it can impact some of those things, but it didn't go quite that far. But yeah. Well, well, yeah. Once you start, listen, I think that it is not a large or hard jump to make between the concept of one right way and eternal choices, right? And to being able to very easily and logically justify almost every choice in our life as, but there might be a point in some situation where this could shift a direction for me. This could shift my life into like a different way and then who knows what will happen, right? Like, yes, it sounds extreme from the tail end, of, of like looking back and being like, oh, wow. But it's it's really not that hard of a jump to make with that type of ideology in there. 
especially with all the stories you hear, right, about how a missionary followed a prompting, a little tiny voice in his head or a suggestion or an idea to knock on that door. Uh And at that door, they met this family that was ready for the gospel and received it. And then generations of their family have been blessed by these truths that have saved their lives and their eternal souls you know what I mean like you're you're hearing all of these stories or the times when they didn't and then they were in this terrible car accident and whatever like it's it really is steeped in the culture this idea of following the spirit being worthy of the spirit and then when you hear it following it and how important that is and so it really did become an agonizing journey for me to try to be worthy of that and then hear it, decipher it, understand it, and follow it all the time in everything that I could uh-huh. as much as possible, uh-huh. right? Uh-huh. 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 Which, yes. you know, yes. also, there's, like I said, there's pros and cons. I, I made really good choices in my life. I, I stayed away from addictions. I had friends with high standards. There was a lot of protection and beauty in it also, and it, it did influence who I am as a person, and I most days like her a lot, but it also became crippling um, as far as like independence of thought and decision-making and even like knowing what your core values are because for so much of my life, they were what I was told they should be. Does that mm. make sense? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. And I, I, I love what you said there and I want to shine a little light on it. Um, And I'm glad that you love yourself most days and I'll be thrilled when you love yourself all days because you should, you are a lovable, (laughs) amazing human. Um, You are. So I think that Mormonism does this really well, but it's not unique in this. I think there are multiple different religions that function in this exact way. And that is the uh, claiming of anything that's good or anything that's beautiful that comes out of um, the members of its church. So they definitely like to claim all spiritual experiences and that's a whole thing I could walk through. Uh, But this exactly what you said is also a thing that they claim, right? You are a good person who like, yeah, avoided this and got this and da 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 because of the church, which isn't necessarily wrong, that would be, I mean, we could stand that as correct, right? But then it's always taken one step further. And it said, therefore, it's true, right? Therefore, this is the only true church, because look what it's created. And it is really, really sticky. At least this was this was one of my last sticking points on my way out. And it was one of the hardest because the way that I took this in and you can let me know if you felt the same messaging or not was I had two choices. I could hold on to the church's truth claims and all of the rules and expectations that were expected of me and the roles that I was expected to play. Like I could, I could hold on to all of that or I could go off this other direction. Like, but I had to set down everything I had here. Like I had to leave all the good. I couldn't claim any of it. I couldn't acknowledge any of it if I wanted to go the other direction. And it was a great deal of unraveling for me to be like, wait a second, that's nonsense. Like I can claim the good that it brought me and honor that and still not believe that it is the one true church and the only way to God. 
Did you like, did you struggle with that at all? Did you get the same messaging or was that just something that I pulled in? No, that, that is the messaging, right? Like even in a recent fireside address from one of the leaders of the youth organization, one of the general authorities, Brad Wilcox said that if you leave the church, you lose everything that means anything. That was the hardest talk for me to listen to. I, I made it for, I made myself for research purposes, but I was sick to my stomach for the whole thing. Um, yeah, exactly. No. So thank you. It is, it is the messaging. Yeah. And there, and I think when we were younger, they were a little bit more, um, yeah, what the thing I heard about Brad Wilcox was, uh, he says the quiet parts out loud. And I think that's the best description I have ever heard of what he, cause it is true <laughs> when we were younger, they would say it, but they wouldn't say it like that. Like you would just like, it was in Sunday school yeah, not over the pulpit. Yeah. And it was like through <laughs> these, these stories that you're talking about, right? These like myths and legends of like the Mormon church of, yeah, these amazing things that happened because of a prompting and, and like, I wouldn't have had that if I wasn't here. Right. I couldn't have done that if I wasn't part of this church. Like I would have to, I would have to set all of these gifts down if I left. And so I love that you are in a place of stepping away and, and you're in a very difficult, uncomfortable place on and off and still unraveling, but that you have claimed that, right? Like without shame, like you've said, there were good things that came from that. And I'm taking that with me. I think that's beautiful. I think that's what we have to do on our journey, right? Whatever we're coming from, or at least that's what it's been for me, that to helpfully get through hard experiences or good experiences, you want to take the things that you can learn then the things you want to keep. Yeah. And there is a lot of good. There's a lot of good in a lot of places. There is. And there's a lot of good in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. A lot of good people. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of good in the worst of places, too. And I think, you know, I remember, and I don't know if I've told this story or not. Oh, this poor, these poor podcast listeners. I, guys, if I repeat myself, it's not intentional. Um, I just tell a lot of stories to a lot of people. And so then they just all are in this pool of stories that who, what have I, who have I, <laughs> what have I handed to who? I don't know. Um, so, um. I was in college and listen, I'd had, I had a pretty rough go of it pretty early. And like, that's a fair assessment. Even looking back, like everyone else was still in their fun, like teenager, like life isn't that hard stages yet. And I had been through a ridiculous amount of weird, awful, horrible health problems. In addition to just the normal teenage angst and bullying and all the junk, like it had just been a, it had been a hard go. And I remember sitting in my dorm room and I was crying um, because all of my roommates really quite literally had not been through even half of what I had had to walk through at that point and not to dishonor their journeys. It was just like, we had all talked about it. Like it was just the timing on mine was a little earlier. Right. And so as a young person, I didn't understand life, right. That like it all balances out. It's all fine. But I was really upset and I was crying and I was just like, why? Like, why does all of this have to happen to me? Like, this is ridiculous. And it was such a profound moment because I had this very calming feeling come over me and I could very clearly see all of the really beautiful parts of me and my personality that were created as a direct result of these experiences. 
And everything that I saw were like the only parts of me that at that point in my life, I really, truly loved. Like they were the only parts of me that I could be like, I'm really proud of that like version, right? Like that makes me happy. And then it was kind of like, I, the question was posed to me, like, would you change, like, would you really get rid of this if you could? And I remember being like stopping and I was annoyed because I can't lie. And so I was like, I couldn't say yes. And, but I stopped and I was like, all right, you know what? Fine. Yes. I'm grateful for all of this. I'm not ready to say thank you yet because I'm just not there, <laughs> but I'm, I wouldn't go back and change it. And I, and I think that that, yeah, like you said, is true with, with everything. There's always going to be good that comes out of it. So anyway, sorry, I derailed this. All right. Um, so you said, yeah, I have a couple of quotes here that you said to me in the pre-interview. Um, and I want to talk about this and we need to, let's see. Okay. So growing up, um, home, we haven't really gotten to mission. So anything that I bring up, we can just throw it in whatever time frame we need to. But, um, you said, I was so good at listening and obeying other people that I didn't know how to listen to myself. Yeah, I still feel like I'm learning how to listen to myself because other people's expectations were always super important to me. And part of that could have been, like I said, being, you know, the birth order that I was the oldest or and part of it could be my OCD tendencies and perfectionism. And, and part of it could be church culture. Like there's so many factors to that. But yeah, I, living up to other people's... And, you know, part of it could be codependency from having a somewhat dysfunctional family be because of generations of trauma, right, that yeah. trickles down um, no matter how hard we try to stop it. Um, and my parents are good, good people who did their best with what they have, and they're still good, good people. And But our family struggled with my mom's mental illness, and my dad was working a lot as a self-employed person, and... Um, so I think I developed some codependency tendencies through the unpredictability of my family. So some of it's from that, but like meeting other people's expectations was really where I found my worth and my value. Mm. And so, and it was super reinforced in the culture of the church because you're always, especially as a woman, um, presided over by someone. There's always an authority to tell you what to do, to give you an assignment, to give you praise. When you come back and report, you fulfilled that assignment. There's just within that hierarchy or within my family or with at school, like all of my foundational experiences of life depended on me living up to other people's expectations, getting the grade. I got really good grades because that was something I could control. I couldn't control what was going on in my home or whether or not my mom was having a good day, whether she was in bed all day or whether she was functioning. None, none of that was within my control, but I could do my homework. Right. And that was something I could control. So I did my homework. I met my teacher's expectations. I was the good kid. I read, prayed, obeyed, raised my hands in Sunday school. Like, and that was reinforcing, really reinforcing being the good kid. Yeah. Yeah. The Molly Mormon. How is that affecting you say. now? Like, what are you struggling with in that now? Cause you aren't, you aren't in the church anymore. So that rule system is not standing next to you at this point. Yeah. It's really tricky. <laughs> it's really that was one of the scariest feelings especially as a rule follower mm -hmm. um to have your foundation fall out from under you and, it, and I don't think a lot of people understand that it it's not like 
it wasn't like a choice. It wasn't like I was like, okay, I don't like this anymore. I'm not going to do it anymore. It was literally, it fell out from under me. It felt like it happened to me mm-hmm. that I was doing my best to be the best within that framework. And it fell out from under me. That's how it felt. And then I wasn't sure what the rules should be anymore. (laughs) And learning to listen to myself and what, like evaluating what are my core values? What are the things that are most important to me and why? And what do I want for my life? Not just the outline of what you're supposed to do, which, you know, there was a little bit of this, like, kind of feeling it out after you achieve the goal. Because in the church, the goal was to marry a return missionary in the temple and have children. Because that's my life's purpose, was to give bodies to souls, to Heavenly Father's children, and raise them in the church to return them to God. Yeah. So I I was there and trying to do that the best that I could, right? And then it fell out from under me. And now I'm like, now what? <laughs> Yeah. What is what is yeah. supposed to be my purpose? And we're going to talk. What is supposed to be the plan? Yeah. We're going to talk about the falling out from under you because I think that that is really important. Um, but I also want to spend just a little more time on this process because it's something that I know I did not expect, like, which is funny because I really, mine was, uh, mine did fall out from under me and then I fought it for like eight years. So like mine was a choice at the end. Um, a very like deliberate working through, but um, same. I think our journeys, as we've talked about them, have been kind of similar in that way. Yeah, it's like even, and isn't that funny that even the bottom drops out and we're still like no, <laughs> like grasping for anything, holding right? on because, for dear life. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and yeah, this idea that we're just like oh, I just don't do this anymore is frankly offensive. Um, <laughs> but. Yes. I because I took so long, I really did spend a lot of time um thinking through, I thought, you know, what I believed and like what was right and what was wrong. And yet still, once I made the decision and I had two teenage children and I realized, oh my god, I don't have a rule book for this in the time that I was told that I needed it the most. And yeah, it was shocking to me how frequently I would run into things where I would have to stop and be like, do I actually think this is wrong? Or do I just feel like this is wrong? Do I actually want this? Do I not? Is this a problem? Is it not like it was so often and it was exhausting. So like, what has that process been like for you and how, like, is there any type of tips you can offer to people who are in the middle of this? Like, how are you getting through this? Oh, that's hard. Talking to friends like you <laughs> has been part you're of you're in the middle me. of it. I know. That's why it's hard. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because like we talked about, I, I'm so used to going to that external authority, whether it's God through prayer and trying to listen to the spirit or a priesthood leader or a husband or a father or whom, like whatever that older, wiser, has more authority person is. And a part of this is probably normal midlife crisis stuff. I don't know. I've never done this before, but um, <laughs> part of it is definitely changing your whole paradigm and uh, 
Chris worldview, but yeah. So it's like, well, you've mentioned meditation and how much it's helped you. And I'm not super good at that yet, but it really is getting to the quiet time or quiet place where you can remove all those external influences and really listen to your heart and what's important to you. And that is a process that I'm learning to to do and then learning to trust, like to, mm. to take back my own authority yeah. and live an authentic life, figuring out what that authentic Kira is, who she is, and then honoring her and making choices that align with my core values and, you know, the process of trying to figure out what those are yeah. outside of external influences. And that is something that I feel like a lot of teenagers maybe went through, but I didn't because it was set out for me mm-hmm. who I was supposed to be and I was striving to be her. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So now I'm having to figure I it do. out on my own. And that feels really, I've told you before, it feels kind of embarrassing at 42 to be like, I don't know who I am. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I mean, I know who I am, but you know what I mean? Just yeah. just have, feeling like this huge chunk of my identity has been removed. And then realizing that that wasn't my identity ever, right? Like I brought my core values into the my experience in the church. What I loved about the church or what I took from the church was because of who I am as a person. So she was always there, but she was always listening to external influences and striving to have like that seal of approval from someone else. So learning to not need that anymore and to feel validated in my own authority and approval, that is a process that's really hard, but also really beautiful. Mm. So oh, you're making me tear up up here. Oh my God. Thank you so much. I was, it was perfect and it was beautiful and I was really hoping you would say what you got to, which was taking your own authority back. Um, yeah, I noticed as you were listing off everyone that you always went to authority. It was all white males, by the way. <laughs> I was like, and, or heavenly males. <laughs> but you know, to take our own authority and to, and to understand that, yeah, we don't need an intercessory to access what we need to access. And I really loved how you said that you were always in there. It was just being overlaid with all of these other stuff. Like that is so powerful. It just gave me chills because it is true. And I want everyone to really hear that because that's true for everybody that we are in there. Like who we are is there. It's okay to find her and to honor her. And she doesn't need to be lorded over and she doesn't need to be presided over. And she like, we are capable and worthy of developing as individual souls who are valuable just as they are. So thank you. That was phenomenal. Thank you. Oh, so good. So good. So good. Thank you for helping me process. I think these conversations help me find language does that make sense yeah for the experience and that helps us experience it and makes make sense of it right yeah and find meaning in the struggle it does and I you're you're welcome first of all you don't need to thank me but you are welcome um 
I think finding language around all of this is such a critical part of the journey. And it is actually part of why I wanted to do this, because I think that we as humans, we tend to get really short circuited by emotional responses. And it is really hard and scary to step back and like, and it's, it's, it's scary and it's difficult because you have to be somewhat neutral in order to step back and say like, whoa, what is actually happening here? Right. What is the truth here beyond and deeper than, and once you can put language to it, that emotional response, it's still there, but it loses its power over you. I feel like language the intensity wanes. Yes, it does. And all of a sudden you're like, yes, I'm sad or yes, I'm scared, but it's not this like overwhelming fog because that's what it does is it, it's this fog over you and you're feeling, but you can't get out or see or fix anything because it's the fog, right? And to sit down and like clear that fog out and put language around it and really understand the core things and understand our beliefs that aren't true and, and be able to set those down and to see reality like that is, it's the only way through, like it is what we have to do. And so I'm hoping that by having more people on like you that are able to say these beautiful, profound thoughts that someone will hear these words and be like that right? And then that fog will clear and they'll be able to like see and start to work through that stuff. So it's just, yeah, I think you're right. The language is so, so, so important around all of this. Let's go to, let's go to your mission for a little bit because um, you said some really, you said some really good things there that I think would be good to talk about. Um, And you've mentioned a few already about, it was really an ideal environment in your mind at that point in your life, because now, not only now did you, now you had rules, but now you had rule rules. Like you get up at this time, you are out of the house by this time. You, I mean, it is quite literally your life becomes scripted. Um, and this actually, yes, even like you memorized the things you're teaching people also. So yeah. Everything literally, literally, things are scripted. Yes, absolutely. So I know that they do it differently now, but oh, that is true, huh? I forget that some of that has shifted. That's so it's it's weird to think about uh, a reality being different than your reality was for so long. Um, but when you okay, so you got out here, out there, and everything heightened though for you, right? So you had exactly what you thought you wanted, which was more rules. But what did that actually create within you? Well, it was like, I'm a really project-oriented person. So being able to focus on one thing at a time is super my comfort zone. I love it. It feels really good. So being able to go there and focus just on missionary work was super nice for me. And like you said, having really specific rules that helped govern choices of really minimized because I really do struggle with indecision it took a lot of that decision making out of it for me and that was also really comfortable and nice but then it left leaves you kind of dependent on that external framework right and because of my OCD tendencies I think it really started to develop into possibly a mild form of scrupulosity where you're just like so rigid in it that it impacts the rest of your life in an adverse way and I'm not a clinical psychologist so I don't know if it would really fit in there 
But as I was listening to people talk about scrupulosity, I was like, oh, maybe that was me. Maybe I had a little bit of that um, because I was so, so, so rigid in trying to be exactly obedient. And I remember us having a really hard conversation once about that and about how I was like, I'm going to mess up. I'm going to make mistakes because I can't be perfect. So I have to be perfect in all the ways that I can. I have to be obedient in all of these things. Like I can't consciously choose to not because I'm making all of these sins of omission where I'm like not doing what I should. You know what I mean? Like I already knew there were so many ways that I wasn't worthy or that I wasn't perfect that I had to be perfect in the things that I could. And it ended up being really challenging for you. I remember like one of the things was a preparation day conflict where that's our day to go grocery shopping, clean the car and just be a regular human. That was really important and necessary for you mentally to be able to have a day where you didn't have to be a missionary. And it was really important yeah. to me to wear our proselyting clothes and represent <laughs> the Lord and be obedient to that rule <laughs> Because I could in any in any activity where you could. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I remember us hitting heads really hard about that. And you listening to me and me listening to you and both of us like being able to see each other's perspective better. Yeah. It, like it came after we wrestled, I think, and <laughs> physically, <laughs> like literally <laughs> physically wrestled. <laughs> we did actually wrestle. I forgot about that. I think there's extra evidence of that somewhere. <laughs> yes. How, how did we have extra evidence? No. Ooh, wait, I'm losing my mind. Anyway. I'm not really sure. Yeah, I have a picture. Oh, did I wrestle more than one companion? That's weird. So, because, but yeah, I think anyway. So obviously, it impacted relationships as well. Like it, yeah. it made me a difficult sister to <laughs> be companions with. <laughs> you know, it's funny though because I th- I think that conversation was actually in our it's on our second time around, um, being companions. That's what I was remembering too. Yeah, and what that conversation really is what turned the corner for me on like seeing you for who you were and loving you and and finding the beauty in you. Cause yeah, the rigidity was very frustrating. Um, and my personality runs up against that a, a little hard sometimes. Um, but during that conversation, that same emotion that just came in when you were retelling it was there and what I saw and felt I remember, I just, I remember it so clearly because it was like this light bulb went off and I, it kind of like, like pushed, like, it felt like it pushed me back a little bit where I was like, oh my gosh, I really had felt like, you know what it was? I think I had felt like you had been coming from this place of holier than thou, like we're going, I am more righteous and rule following than you, which is not who you are at all. But that's, I think, how I was reading it. And that conversation turned it for me. And I was like, oh, my gosh, that's not it at all. She is coming from a place of of her love of God, right? And a desperation to love him in the best possible way. And there is a desperation underneath that, that she's not going to be able to do it well enough. And when I saw that and realized that everything in me softened and I like there were still Listen, I'm sure I rolled my eyes at you approximately 3,000 times after that, <laughs> but it didn't make me angry anymore. You know, like I was just like, okay, <laughs> this is what we're going to do because it's going to kill her if we don't do it. 
Like it's going to literally <laughs> like destroy her if we don't follow these rules. Um, and yeah, no, that was a huge, huge turning point for me was just seeing the the motivation behind your behavior for sure. Yeah. Uh, well, and you're very generous. I think you're more generous than like definitely. I loved God and wanted to serve Him well, but I I think a huge part of it was self. Like I didn't want to be unworthy. Yeah. Like I didn't want to be held accountable for the sins. I didn't, you know, I really did feel like people's eternal salvation was resting on my being worthy to hear the spirit and follow it so that I could meet the people I needed to meet and share the truths with them that we were out there to share. Yeah. So I wasn't quite, you, you gave me a little bit more credit than I think. I don't know. Maybe just take it, just take it. (laughs) Well, so it's interesting because when we talked, you were talking about, and you just brought it up a little bit, which is the, um, this idea that if you weren't perfect, terrible things were going to happen. And when you first said this to me, I thought you just meant like you weren't going to find someone to baptize. And that is what you meant. And I want you to talk about that. But you also gave an example of like accidentally killing someone with your car or something insane. Like it was like good and bad. Like the world was going to go down in flames with a lack of obedience. I don't remember. I don't remember the killing somebody with the car, but I do remember the mission, the man in charge of the cars for the mission, you know, really emphasized Uh that these are the Lord's resources purchased with the Lord's money. And I remember him giving like almost an apostolic, right. But it wasn't apostolic, but just within this, the realm of his authority, a promise that if we obeyed all the mission rules, and the laws of the land, like we didn't speed, didn't run a red light, whatever, that he promised we would not get in a car accident. So that was really, I held on to that promise because I did not want to be responsible for wrecking the Lord's car, right? So, oh, okay, I think, see, I, I maybe over-dramatized that story. That does sound like something I would do. Um, but so but the same <laughs> concept. So you, diso- so you disobeyed. Yes, so something stupid, like, and I shouldn't say stupid, but it in my opinion, this is where I'm standing, something stupid, like getting out of the vehicle and backing the driver out, even if it was three inches back, because I didn't go back far enough, but I was still in a straight line just for a random example that I pulled out of nowhere. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Listen, it happened, guys. (laughs) That would have been another eye rolling time. I was like, oh my gosh. So, so if you didn't do that, then there was a very real possibility in your mind that we could get in a car accident, killing ourselves and possibly others because you didn't get out and back us up. Well, the killing ourselves and others, I don't think was part of my framework, but that we could get in an accident and that it would be my fault because I wasn't obedient. She's not going to give me this killing people thing. Damn it. She's just not going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying. I'm but yeah, trying. I mean, that could be a consequence of an accident, That's but I don't I think I ever went there in my head. <laughs> Okay. Uh, And then also that if you weren't obedient, that you could, yeah, miss out on someone who was supposed to hear the gospel and that then it could like ruin their entire lives because, oh, generations, right? Generations. Yeah. So like if you weren't obedient, God, the stress that you must've been under, I really feel bad. So if you didn't do everything perfectly, then you wouldn't find the investigator because you couldn't hear the spirits because you weren't perfect. Therefore, you couldn't hear the spirit. Therefore, you would miss the door to knock on. You didn't knock on the right door. Yeah. And this is where our ideology differed a little bit, which I think is interesting because I was shocked at this because you were like, and then yes, like generations will have not been in the church and received blessings. 
And I was like, you don't think someone else would find them that like, that's not part of their life thing. And so someone else would make it up. And you, you told me, no, that that was not a belief system you held at that point. Right. I don't think I did. I mean, it was really, I felt a lot of pressure, right? It was probably the OCD in me or whatever, the scrupulosity, hearing those stories because they tell these stories as if like, yeah, there's like, you have a specific role to fill. There's people that you are meant to touch. You're here in these last days for a reason and God needs you especially for the men, right? It was kind of optional for us to go. But I heard all of this messaging and it was reinforced by my dad sharing his amazing mission experiences that were so inspiring for him where he felt led to the right people and was able to say the right words and touch their hearts. And then, you know, we were still in contact with them and, and you know, knew their families and now their children are in the gospel. And it's all because my dad followed the spirit. Right. So I totally internalized that and yeah, really felt the pressure. I don't, I don't think it was like completely crushing, but it just, it did drive that desire to be a hundred percent obedient. Like I remember having a new missionary that I was training and we were out um, knocking on doors to share our message and we were pretty close to home, but it was getting really close to our curfew. And I remember we ran home to get in by 9.30. And I'm sure that was one of those times where she eye-rolled with you <laughs> at me. <laughs> I didn't just see you taking I hope it didn't lead to too much stress for her. <laughs> probably just some shin splints. It's probably fine. Um, <laughs> oh, man. No, it's... But yeah, that's the level of obedience it was for me. It wasn't just like, I'm not going to go to the movies because we can't do that. I'm not going to turn on the TV. Like, it wasn't even just the big things. Like, it was, I wanted to be in by 9.30 because we were supposed to and out by 9.30 or whatever the yeah. time was. Yeah. 9.30, 10, I can't remember. Anyway. Yeah. The little, my new tay. I so I haven't, I haven't, all of it. Um, I don't think that I've ever asked you this before, but I'm, I'm curious. So we'll see if this is something you can, you can fly with or not here. Um, from where you're at now, cause I know you didn't feel this way on your mission. Um, and, and after like, so I'm, I'm going to take in like your life as a whole living under this type of extreme obedience and rule following to get to heaven and make sure everything is perfect and be good and all of these things. And then we talked about who you really were, right? Like that, that part of you that's in there and and been there the whole time. Do you feel like this scrupulosity, this extreme obedience that you has had, uh, grabbed onto you so tightly did it get in the way of the you that is you from being able to come out and express herself does that make sense yeah it does make sense I would like to see Mm. you know I think that that's still an exploration that I'm going to be learning from over the next few years think yeah I don't know yeah fair I found because I I do think that that anxiety of being exactly obedient is fresh like 
that's a lot of pressure. I don't know. Who would I be if I didn't have that pressure? What kind of missionary would I have been? What kind of experiences would we have had or relationships we would have built in a different way? I don't know. I don't think we can ever know those kinds of answers to those kinds of questions. And I'm still a lot of times a rule follower, but now I, I get to decide, does that rule make sense to me? Right. And if it doesn't, are the consequences of not following it something that I want to risk? You know, whether it's in employment or in our community or whatever. And I I do feel like there's more flexibility for me as far as rule following. And I've always been a little bit like I'll stand up against something that doesn't make sense to me. Mm. Not so much in the church framework because that came from God. Right. But now that I can step away from that and be like, um, it doesn't make sense to me for women to not be in the rooms where decisions are being made. Mm-hmm. And now I feel like I can interact with the community I used to be a part of in a different way mm-hmm. and that it's more authentic to who I am as a person. And I'm excited about that. Like I, I enjoy, I, it gives me anxiety, but I also enjoy those opportunities to rub shoulders with priesthood leaders from our local congregation as the new me does that make sense like yeah embracing that I'm not a subordinate of them that I'm not going to interact as though they preside over me and having opportunities to move in that way in the world and intersect with the world I used to be part of and it's it's kind of exciting yeah I like it I I'm glad you like it because I know I have been I've seen a little more of that particular journey of you stepping back into the church as not a quote unquote I mean you're still a member on paper but like you're not going in as the subordinate yes you're going in as an outside community leader and on equal footing and um yes you've been every time we talk I feel like you step into that a little bit more and it's awesome to see um, let me, I'm going to clarify, cause you're right. Uh, everything you said, I want to clarify the question just a little bit and see what we get. And we might not get anything and that's totally okay. Cause I am having trouble putting words around all of this for me too. I've noticed that there are parts of not only my personality, but there, I'm also finding parts of um, how my mind works, how my like soul interacts with the world and God and all of these things like that were very squashed down in the church that I wasn't able to access or um, honor or grow. And like a silly frivolous example of this is like, I really actually have a very, I mean, an analytical mind, but also like, listen, I think I would have loved to sit around in a room at Harvard and discuss philosophy with 12 other people for four hours. Like, but that wasn't something that I, I couldn't access that part of me because it opened danger doors around me that the church was not okay with. Um, So have you had any parts of you coming up that you're like, oh my gosh, I didn't even know that that was part of me. Or I kind of knew, Um, but I couldn't really get to her. There were parts of me that I feel like I thought I was strong in that I realized, oh, I really wasn't. And this is what it really feels like. And I love this and I won't let go of it. Do you know what I mean? Like, I felt like I was a really 
loving person and that I had respect for other people and their Mm -hmm. journeys. But I always was coming from a framework of, but this is the right way. And if only they knew and they would make such great Mormons, you know what I mean? When I intersected with people, but then I, as an adult, you know, I live in an area where there's a lower population or percentage of members of the church where I grew up in a high percentage population of members of the church. And I started to really respect and admire and value these beautiful lives that I had seen my friends living outside of any religious orthodoxy. So I had a friend who I lovingly call her a dry Mormon. She has more food storage than I do. She had really good members, uh, really good friends who are members of the church. She's the most serving, giving, beautiful human, loves God, but doesn't participate in any organized religion. She was Catholic at one point, but anyway, and she just lives a life of service and is a beautiful human. And then I have another friend who's not religious at all. And she is one of the most incredible, thoughtful, discerning humans I've ever met. And I just love her. And I have another friend who's Muslim and her dedication to her faith and her love for her family was beautiful to me. And I started as I was processing my own, like, reevaluating what I believe, I started to be able to really respect and value that they were following these other really beautiful different paths than my own and to see them as equally valid Mm. and that's something I don't want to let go of I feel like I have more empathy for different people's journeys more unconditional love and more respect for different paths and I don't think everybody has to go through a faith crisis to get there there's maybe there are people within an orthodox religion that can that can be there and hold tight to the truth like my sister uh laurel is a really good example of this where she loves me and honors my journey even though i've stepped away from the faith that we were raised Mm -hmm. in but she holds tight to her faith um i i didn't i couldn't i wasn't there and perhaps that's part of my ocd scrupulosity where like this was the right way. And as I've stepped away from believing that I've been able to see there are many right ways. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. That's really beautiful. Learning to honor the gift that was already there in a more whole way, like taking that love and and turning it into a whole beautiful thing that values everyone equally, as opposed to, yeah, like you said, that caveat, Oh, if only, if only they were Mormon. I was really sad the other day, and I don't want to say that all Mormons do this because that would be unfair, um, but I think that it's prevalent because I've seen it and heard it happen many times, and and it's exactly what you're saying is is when people attend um, non-Mormon weddings who are Mormon, and what I hear, I've heard so many times is, oh, it was beautiful. It's just, oh, it's such a pity that they couldn't have been married in the temple, so like they weren't sealed for time and all eternity, and it just breaks my heart because I'm like, you you weren't able to appreciate the beauty in their way and the beauty in their love because you were so lost in really feeling like you're standing somewhat above them and have a better, a better option. And it's very hard to love like that when you feel like you're standing above somebody. So yeah, that was beautiful. Totally. Okay. So you get home permission. You get married, you start having kids. Um, I'm going to give you one question and then you're going to blend it in as you, I'm just going to let you go. Um, 
I want to, I want you to talk about if you can and want to, um, how this scrupulosity affected you as, uh, you know, going in through this, getting married, having children, um, and, or, uh, we can go straight into your story of how the bottom fell out for you. Well, they kind of intersect, I think. Um, my oldest didn't feel comfortable getting baptized. He was, you know, for various reasons. And the scrupulous me before having gone through some of my own questioning would have just been like, but this is what we do. And I would have just done whatever I could with my missionary tools to resolve concerns and help him get there. But I had come to a place where I wasn't quite sure anymore. Um, I had been reading in the Old Testament and finding that I didn't believe in the God that's depicted there. That he, if, if that's who God was, he wasn't worthy of my worship. Um, um, explain, explain that for people. What were you, what were you reading? Well, as a mom, right? So I'm reading it. So I'd read these parts of the Bible before, but as a mom, I was reading with the lens of a mom. Right. So if this is a perfect heavenly parent and this is how this parent is interacting with their children, like commanding that they go destroy whole cities with the men, women, children and animals being killed, that did not align with my values. That was not what a loving parent would do. Like I thought of the horrors of war and the, the ending another life, the impact that would have on the souls of these people that he's commanding to do this. And I just was like, if God is all powerful, that doesn't have to be the way that he makes space for his chosen people to live. And it doesn't make sense to me to choose a specific group of people to bless at the expense and cost of others. Like all of it just didn't align with a God of love, like the God of the New Testament or Jehovah more as an example of what I would align with my idea of a loving God or a loving heavenly parent. And so this, this God I was reading about in the Old Testament didn't make sense to me. And growing up, I had just accepted the answers that, you know, God, his ways are not our ways and we can't see the whole picture. And so we don't understand everything fully, but we will at some time in the future. And as a mom with children, I was like, I can't teach this to my children. This doesn't make sense. This is not the God I want to worship. So I kind of set it aside because, you know, it's the Bible. The Bible's super old. It's been through a lot. It may or may not have been translated correctly. And I just kind of put it on the shelf. But when I read, um, when it, when our daughter died, we were pregnant with identical twins. And one of them passed away at 20 weeks from heart failure. And so then I was carrying both of them together, our living, beautiful baby and our baby who had passed. And I was like really doing some soul searching and f- trying to figure out what this meant and how this fit into this plan of salvation I'd been taught all my life. And I turned to the Doctrine and Covenants, these revelations from the prophet Joseph Smith, um, and trying to look for these, the comfort of the sealing power that my family would be together forever. And as I read in the Doctrine and Covenants, his command to Emma that she participate in a polygamous marriage or be destroyed. Mm-hmm. I heard the God of the old Testament that I don't believe in mm-hmm. echoed in these words that are supposed to be from the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Right. That's been bringing all of the truths of God's 
all of God's beautiful truths back to the earth for his children. And I, I was like, oh, oh no, I don't believe in this God either. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And so that was kind of the beginning of me feeling like, I'm not sure what I believe and I can't push this on my child. His relationship with his God has to be his to own. And so we ended up not having him baptized, though our second and third children did end up being baptized. We continued to participate in the church in varying degrees. And each of those baptisms were a little bit less orthodox as we continued to reevaluate our beliefs and, and to find that this path, the orthodox path that we were raised in wasn't, was no longer the path for our family, no longer the right path for our spirituality. Yeah. So where did you guys just stop? Like, did you make a choice like, okay, we're just not going to go anymore? Or did it kind of just fade out as that decision was made? I'm just curious. We um, continued to go. We ended up feeling like the church was more good than harm for our family. Like we, we'd know we were no longer completely orthodox. Um, we were going through reevaluating our beliefs. We were able to, I, there was something that happened. It was like a current event in the church and it was where someone had accused a priesthood leader of sexual assault. And then I saw the church's response to her situation where their lawyers kind of prepared this dossier against her. And I just like that rubbed me the wrong way. And I, I don't want to say that this was like my breaking point because it's not. And I think a lot of people, I still worry that people will pick apart, you know, what I'm saying and like, oh, this is where she led astray. She was offended. I wasn't offended. That's not why I'm not in. But this was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back for me that I, I was like, if God is really leading these men, he would not lead them to do this to this woman. Mm -hmm. And then I started to see more of a pattern of that with sexual assault where the perpetrators seem protected and the victims further victimized. And I just, it, it, you know, all organizations have their struggles. None of them are perfect. And I'm not trying to like pick apart or, or find criticism in anything in particular, except that this gave me permission to look at my leaders with a more critical eye because I had been taught that was the first step to apostasy and apostasy mm -hmm. was losing everything that meant anything. Mm -hmm. Right. So I couldn't even look at the leaders with a critical eye. I, I couldn't disagree with them. I sustained them. I supported them. I followed them. I listened to their counsel. I did what they said. That was my pattern and path as a super rigidly obedient member. Right. Mm -hmm. But this, you know, the things I'd read in the scriptures, my own personal questioning, it all kind of culminated in me being able to see things that I hadn't seen before and that I could no longer unsee. Mm -hmm. So that was a point at which we ended up like only going to fulfill our responsibility, which was a stewardship over a small class in primary. And it felt like it was something that I could do even within my current level of nuanced belief mm -hmm. that we just skipped the lessons that like if there was a lesson about Joseph Smith I just chose not to do that lesson a lot of our lessons were on gratitude on the creations of the earth birds and sun and shapes and colors and that was a safe place so I was able to still engage with the community that I loved 
um, and fulfill our responsibility. But when the end of that year came and the primary president came to us about the next year, I was like, I think it would be beneficial for us to no longer be in the primary, like to be able to go to adult classes or something. And I think I intended to, but my husband was really at a place where he was feeling angry (laughs) about different things as he was processing his own journey. And it ended up feeling like for the piece of our family, it was better if we all just stayed home. And we gave, we talked to our children and gave them a choice and told them we would fully support taking them. We would take them and go with them if they felt strongly about going. We were really trying to navigate this in a way that honored their own journey. Um, But we ended up all deciding to stay home at that point. Yeah. And have loved having the extra time together as a family. Yeah. So if you're okay with it, I would. So it's kind of gradual. Yeah. I'd like to explain a little bit and have you talk to, um, your nervousness around people making assumptions and picking things apart and um, yeah, the offended thing. So, uh, so anyone who is not Mormon or doesn't have a lot of Mormon understanding, um, there is a really hard, mm, some people would call it culture. I'm going to call it a deliberate line of manipulation within the church that says, Okay, I'm just I'm gonna building block this. This is the only way I'm gonna get this out properly. So, if the church is true, and the church has to be true, right? And if the church is the only way to God, then and the only way to true joy, the only way to true joy. That's very significant. Then anyone who says that it's not true cannot be correct. So if you cannot be correct in your choice about not believing in this, then because we're human beings, we have to give reasons for that. And the reasons have to be there for multiple reasons. And one you've already hit on, which is we look at other people who are not LDS and we are like, oh, but they look happy, right? So now this is where the manipulation comes in. We have to combat this because there's danger here because now the underlying precepts don't feel true because this person looks happy. So What we're going to do is we're going to put a whole bunch of things in line here that says things like they're not actually happy because God's happiness is different than worldly happiness. We're going to dismiss them by saying, well, they were just offended. And if they actually believed in God, they would know that a human offense is not more important than God's approval and love and obedience. Um, We're going to an eternal blessing and eternal blessings. Uh, We're going to say things like, um, you know, they just weren't strong enough to be able to like walk the path, right? They were weak. Um, and my and that one is really hard for me. Yes. Sorry, may I interject yes, really quickly? Because especially after losing um, our daughter, I really have carried and still carry that fear that they'll see me as weak. Yeah. Oh, poor Kira. Yep. Her daughter died and she wasn't strong enough to hold the faith through that trial right. to endure to the end. Oh. Right. 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 So I do really still struggle with that a little bit of being seen as yeah, someone yeah. who just didn't have a strong enough testimony or didn't read her scriptures enough or didn't pray enough so that she could have the faith to endure that trial and stay faithful. Yeah. Yeah. And of course because Mormon we're going to we're going to Mormonize that down. I'm going to boil that down to like what it's really saying. 
because we, we are taught the, the trial, right? Enduring the trial. So all of these things come into our life as trials from God and we have to succeed, right? So if you fail, you have been not only influenced by, but basically captured by Satan because you failed, right? You failed. So yeah, of course you're still struggling with that. That's a horrible, horrible thing to put on someone else and to to have all of your family and your friends and your community thinking about you. Like that has been the painful thing for me. And that's, this is exactly what you're saying is sure. There are going to be outliers, but when I interact with a member of the church, for the most part, I know what they're thinking. And that is painful. That is painful. It is hard to interact with someone that you are aware feels that you failed the trial, that you were not strong enough, and that you fell. That is hard, especially when it's not it's not truth and it's not accurate and it's not reflection of who you are and the values that you hold. Um, yeah, so I just wanted to have people understand why this is so why this is so difficult for people who are coming out and trying to stand on their own and trying to use their voices when um, the community around them and oftentimes their family feel that they have been lost in a very literal way and lost to um, a Satan influence. And it's, it's something that we are taught to think um, in order to combat people leaving the church. And it, leaves a lot of pressure like I remember feeling a lot of pressure that I have to show them that I am happy right I have to prove to them that I am happy uh, that this is a positive change for me and that is so much pressure because then I don't share my heart with my sister who's still yes. 100% in right and who because I'm worried she'll attribute any of the hard to my choice like yes. I've, I've made this choice and isn't it sad that she's experiencing all these difficulties because she's not all in anymore when the reality is families struggle and life is hard inside or outside of the church yep. like this isn't a perfect la la land uh, that's not the right word but like it's not a utopia yeah. within a church like you it's not all happiness and joy, but I really was taught to believe that, right? Yeah. If you're faithful, you'll be happy. Yeah. That's the promised reward. And so if you're not happy, you're not being faithful mm -hmm. enough. And and so I really still struggle with that messaging and with feeling like I have to prove to my family members that there is that this path has validity, that uh -huh. the, this path is valid, knowing that I never will be able to, because the orthodoxy, like you said, teaches that that's just not true. Yeah, yeah. She just can't have the joy that people can have here. Yeah. And and so that's really hard. So I'm having to really kind of let go of needing some other people to see my path is valid, mm -hmm. and that's part of like claiming my own personal authority, mm -hmm. right? That I. I get to decide that this path is valid and it doesn't matter, even though it does yes. what other people think about it, you know? Well, and I mean, it doesn't actually matter, but it shouldn't is the better word, right? It shouldn't matter, but right now it still does. Um, well, it just, I, I think part of being human is needing connection with other people. And it is harder to connect with other people when there's judgment right? right I think judgment drives disconnection oh yeah so when it's built into the framework right. of their belief system and values it's really hard to surmount that yeah and 
Yes, which is so, why a lot of times... So it does matter. It does. But I still need to follow my path. Right. Well, and I think I would say it's going to matter more within your family connections, right? Than in, like, the community can Definitely. be changed, right? And you can yeah. align with people who... Build new community. Right. But the family, yeah. is it's hard. It's really hard. You know, I want to... I want to say something and I want to say it for you, but also hopefully it'll help someone that's listening too. I get, oh my gosh, I get exactly what you're saying. Like the needing to be happy and to show them like, look how happy I am. Right. Like, look, it's good. It's good. Um, for all the reasons we just, like, this is the best choice I've ever made for my life. I want people to, to see that and to know that I've evolved into a better version of myself than I've ever been, but I feel like they can't receive it. Like, I am a better version of myself than I've ever been, I feel like. Yes. But I'm not happy all the time. Right. Right. But oh. that's no longer my ultimate goal, like, learning and experience and just doing the best to be the best person I can be and make the world a better place is the goal for me. Yes. And happiness will happen along the way, but I'm not going to be happy every day and I'm not going to pretend to be happy every day. Right. Oh, yes. Applause all around. If I wasn't going to blow my mic out, I would have clapped. Um <laughs> So yes, to everything you said, yes, yes, yes. Um, The thing that's interesting that I ran into, and I just want to put it down as a point of conversation, because I think that people need to give themselves permission to do this. I remember, so this would have been two years ago. So I was probably like, I don't know, six months, a year after I left. And I, everything you just said, this is the best decision I've ever made for myself. I am happier. I am calmer. You know, I'm not happy every day, but like, this is the best decision I've ever made for myself and going to my family reunion and really wanting to show like this version of me. And listen, that went fine for like 18 hours. <laughs> and then it was not good. I completely lost my shit. Like I was a basket case. I reverted back in so many ways, like the pressure of that environment. And I, and, and so then I had that extra pressure, which is what you're referring to. It's like I'm mad, but I'm doubly mad because now I've sh- I've shown exactly what I didn't want to show, right? Which was this like disaster that now they're like, oh, oh man, too bad she doesn't have the church to make it okay. But the reason, the reason it was so hard and the reason things went like that over and over again for a, a little while, I think that. Some people are going to walk away and just kind of set everything down and pretend it didn't happen and people take the path they need to take. And so I'm not saying anything negative about that particular choice. The path that I chose to take was the path of complete self overhaul. And that's what we are talking about today, right? It is sitting down and looking at every single thing and being like, why do I think that? Do I agree with that? Is that aligned with the core value? Is this a trauma I need to clear out? Is this something I need to heal? Is this their issue or my issue? Like, did I do like all of that? That type of work is the most painful, exhausting, difficult thing I have ever done in my entire life, worth it every damn day. But there were days where I did not appear happy to other people because I was working through some heavy, heavy things that were requiring very deep unearthing. And two and a half, three years, I don't know how far out we are. um, I'm, I'm rounding a corner in a lot of that. 
And I am now able to show up for my family much closer to the version of myself I would like them to see. And it is undeniable and it is unwavering most of the time because I did the work for three years and let them think that I was miserable for three years to get to where I am. And I think that that is really significant. Like it is okay to just know that you're on the journey. Just you're get you're going there. You're doing the work. It's exactly what you need to be doing, and you will get there. And it's messy, it's and that's so okay. messy. Oh, it's so messy. And then you think you're like you're like I got this, and then three days later, the next thing pops up, and you're like, Oh, come on! Like for real? Again? <laughs> Here I am again. Yes. Yep. That is my life. That is my life. But it's you know, it's been such a gift in my house. Like even though my family, I think is just starting to see things I'd been wanting them to see. And there are things I don't know that they ever will be able to, but, um, the difference it's made inside my home is incalculable. Like the changes in my marriage and the changes in my children, the way that like my, both of my kids are processing the world and processing themselves and their own actions is completely different than three years ago. And it is just from watching me do it. It is not because I've preached. It is not because I have turned it into religion. It is they've just watched me. And so it's shifted all of us. And that is such a gift and totally worth the price that I have to pay to be misunderstood by some members of my family and community. It just is. That's what it ended up being for me, because if it was for, again, I do so, I've done so many things to meet the expectations of others. So I remember coming to a place where I was like, I don't want to hurt my parents because their identity is so tied up in, you know, having raised their children to follow the path. Right. And, and I was the returned missionary who went to Brigham Young University and served as an ordinance worker in the temple and married in the temple and had my children in the church and like did all the things, right? I was on the path. I was safe, right? I was Mm -hmm. on my way back to God. And so for them to have so much of their identity tied up in that success, it it is extremely painful for them for me to have stepped away. And so if it was just for them, if it was just to meet their expectations, I could just pretend, right? I could just pretend and go through the motions for all the rest of my life. But I looked at my children and I knew that I didn't want them to feel like they needed to pretend to be anybody but who they are with me. And if I wanted that to be their reality, then I had to model it. And so I had to tell my family, We've made this choice. I know that it's painful. I'm sorry for the pain it's caused. And that, but it is, this is the journey that we're taking, you yeah. know. And that was really hard. And I still haven't been able to talk about it with my dad at all. We've never had a conversation about it. I sent it in an email. Granted, maybe not the best format for it, but I I do better when I can edit myself. And that's what ended up feeling like that was what I needed to do. So I just emailed it to all my family with mixed responses and you know my mom watches in horror and shares her disappointment and I've asked her not to had to set some boundaries but my dad hasn't ever talked to me about it at all and I feel like that's a rift that I wish that we could bridge yeah. at some point but but like you said from from inside my home from that I did it for my children and them being able to be their authentic selves and know that that 
meant I really wanted them to be whoever they are, even if they're worried it might disappoint me. I felt like I really had to model that. Yes. Oh, that's beautiful. Seriously, the list of things you said today that are just so profound and beautiful, um, because that is, yeah, very similar to me too. I, I faked it and held out for my kids because I didn't want to damn them to hell because that was a very real horror and concern of mine because it's taught that way. Um, deeply it is not it's not it's not like a little sprinkle on top like it is a deep solid teaching um but yeah when that switch happened to feeling like I needed to protect them from this and because I think once you start seeing the damage in yourself it is then so clear to see the damage in your children and we are so quick to sacrifice ourselves like we're like and I think I, I wrote this in one of the chapters I'm working on somewhere about you know, we are, we are so trained and so willing as women to just stand there and die that we will do it. But then when we see the same patterns in our children, it is such a wake up call. And you're like, I can't, I can't do this to them. Like, this is not okay. Yeah. Mm. Totally. Thank you. And that's one of the things I feel excited about, although this journey has been so hard, like you said, the growth that's come from it, but also the conversations that we have as a family about what makes sense and what feels right are really different than I think they would have been within a really rigid paradigm where I'm able to actually listen to what they feel makes sense and feels right. And I don't know. I love that. Yeah. Yes. I think I think I said something like that to Zach this week. Um, and I love that because what's happening in my view, please tell me if you, you know, think that this is a slightly different layout or anything. But I think that when we've been taught and raised in a religion that says not only is our sole purpose to raise our children and get them back to God, right, that what that creates in us is panic and fear. So when our kids express something to us that's not in line with gospel principles, it's we can't hear, we can't listen because all of our alarm bells are going off. We are in pure panic mode. We're freaking out. We're going to lose our kid. He's going to hell. Like, you, how how can we listen through that? We cannot. And so to be able to, yeah, really transfer to this place where that fear is not around that anymore and you can honor your children for who they are listen to their thoughts and feelings and act as a guide, like a as neutral as possible guide. That's a gift. Oh, such a gift. So can you tell me? I I had, oh, sorry. No, 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 please. I was going to say just something that we had talked about before that I was reminded of when you said that is just how much I wish that I had been taught to listen to myself along the way instead of listening to an external source, like to, to find what I truly want, what I truly feel is right. And there's some of that that you're nurtured. Like you, I think you, for you, you said listening to the spirit became like listening to yourself, that that's how you had processed it. But for me, listening to the spirit, that was an external source. I was always waiting for their input as if they were outside of me. And I, for my kids, I want them to have the ability to listen to their hearts. Like what feels right to you what aligns with your core values, who do you want to be and how do you want to move through the world? And I feel like that, that I don't know exactly, I don't have a guidebook for how to help them with that, but hopefully by going through that process myself, like you said, maybe I can model it for them and they can go through that process earlier than I did is what I hope. 
I, and, and I think your hope is correct because you are laying down new pathways in their brain when they are really young and can incorporate it in less scary, less high stakes environments, right? Than what you're having to do at 42, uh, which again, and I said this when you mentioned to me the first time and I didn't earlier when you said it because I don't interrupt you, but when you're like, it's kind of embarrassing. And I'm like, it's not embarrassing. It is amazing because it is so much harder to do it when we're doing it. It's so, because the stakes are bigger. You've got a family, you've got to put food on the table, you've got to raise these kids and keep them safe. Like the stakes are so much larger. And so, yes, integrating this into your children at the age that they're at will make, I think, just a world of difference. Absolutely. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. <laughs> I know it's so scary. It's so scary as a mom. And I'm all right, listen, I'm going to tell this story and my son will probably be. Oh, I don't want to tell it if he's actually going to be embarrassed. So I'm like weighing here because I don't want to betray his trust. Um, But it's so applicable to here. And I just want to tell it because I want to give people hope is really what I'm I'm doing. And this is not I am not bragging. I am just this is this is actually what happened in my house, which I never saw coming. So my son is extremely analytical. Uh, he is very cerebral. He is very, very smart. Um, he's very logical. Like if he can't take something down a logic pathway, like there's a problem. <laughs> so I've been trying his whole life to get him to like tap into his uh, intuition, his empathy, <laughs> like trying to see things from an emotional standpoint instead of just the black and white pieces uh, that he resonates more with. And, um, when this whole journey started for me, like, listen, I went clear, I went from Mormonism to like, I'm chanting in my room to like, help me meditate. And I, you know, all of a sudden, like buying a crystal, like my kids were just like, what is, what is happening? Um, but I knew, I knew that I couldn't shove it on them. I knew that if I tried to push this on them, that they would resist and also, like you were saying, I want them to honor themselves. I want them to learn what's good for them and all of this stuff. And so I just did my thing. I just quietly did my thing. And I shifted entirely. Like I went from being this very, very high, strong, crazy person to, yeah, like not freaking out when they would be used to me freaking out and listening to them talk when instead of like jumping in with this right or wrong thing. Right. And my responses to them were consistently different than what they were accustomed to and I could see like the look of surprise right where they'd be like what is happening um but it was so cool because my son came to me I don't know it's been probably a couple months now and he um we were talking about oh he he was telling me about this fear that he had and I was like yeah and he was like, no, mom, really, I, I really have a sphere here. And I was like, honey, I, I know, like, listen, I have the same one. So that it's pretty obvious. Like I was well aware of this, like you are not telling me anything new. And he, he stopped me, looked at me and he was like, well, why, like, if you knew, why didn't you tell me? And I was like, well, sweetie, like you weren't, you weren't ready for that. And, and he, he, you know, he was like, no, you're right. I thought that's what you were going to say. And I'm glad you waited. And, and then because he's 18, he's got a little defensive and was like, well, I'm, I'm a lot better than other kids. You know, like I really, like, I understand. I was like, yeah, I know, honey, I know. But then I, I stopped him and I was like, but listen, bud, like you have to take into account that you're living with a me. 
So like you have someone here telling you these things and modeling these things and showing you these things. And these other kids don't have, a lot of kids don't have that. Like, so instead of feeling like, oh, look how, look how much I've got my shit together. You need to teach it. Like you need to start showing like how to self-evaluate and how to look at yourself and all of this stuff. And, and then he said to me, listen, it's every mother's dreams. It was really hard not to cry. He was like, he goes, you know, mom, he said, I have been watching you. I'm probably, oh man, I I haven't managed to not cry, but I'm going to cry on this story. He said, I've been watching you. And he said, at first I was really confused as to like what was happening. (laughs) And he said, and then I could see how much you were changing. And I, I finally got to the point where I was like, Hmm, maybe there's something that maybe there's something that I should change. So he said, so I, I sat down and I thought about it and I picked a thing and I worked on it and I did and I changed it. And I was like, okay, good. I got it. Like, whew, all right. And he said, but you just kept doing more. He goes to the point that I really looked at you at one point and thought to myself, oh, come on. Like how many things could be wrong with you? <laughs> and I was like, oh, buddy, it never stops. It never stops. Um, but he, he was like, and so I went back, you know, to myself and was like, okay, well, like, what else? And, and he's like, and I, I found this and, and this is a problem and I need to work on this. So I'm, I'm going to do this thing and I'm making this choice. And, and it was the biggest gift that he could have given me because it validated exactly what we're talking about. Because as a mother, it is so scary to make these changes because you're like, am I actually doing my child to hell? A. B, are there going to be unforeseen consequences that I am not aware of? C, like, or yeah, am I going to look back and be like, oh, I screwed up. This was, this was bad. My kids are not okay. And so I, I'm just, your kids are going to be okay. This is such a gift that you've given them. And to anyone out there who is in the middle of this and who is looking at teenage children who are not appearing to learn anything they are watching they are learning they are seeing and things are shifting they really really are thank you for sharing (laughs) your experience i love hearing about it and learning from your journey it's been it's been a long it's been a long three years have we how close were we to our exit how long have you been out about three years yeah january 2019 I think we stopped okay and so very close I mean I went one other time in February of 2019 so almost identical because mine my last Sunday was the Sunday before Christmas that year and that was the last one so um okay so we need to start wrapping up so on the way out what I would like to ask you as you know the title of the podcast is silencing women in the name of God and I would like to know in what ways you have found your voice on the other side of this that um you hold the closest to you like what do you find the most precious and beautiful around the finding of your own voice and and the reality of you can I interject one other thing first because your question is so beautiful I don't want to mar it but something that I didn't touch on before that I wanted to share and maybe you'll decide to edit it out and that's okay too. But um, the difference that I've seen when I started volunteering with a community organization where there were men there and women and my voice was heard in a different way mm. versus being presided over on a council where the priesthood leader is always the final decision maker. Mm-hmm. 
has been really revelatory for me. Like feeling that difference, the difference of being presided over and not being presided over, of being treated as an equal has been so stark for me to to see and feel that difference. And so that's something that I really value about my journey, being able to come to a place where I could see it and then being able to re-engage with that community in a way that I no longer subscribe to that. Yeah. So could you explain to us the difference, like what you mean by stark? Because you said stark difference is a strong word. Can you explain to us the difference between uh, being involved in meetings? Because I know as a Mormon woman, I myself gave the line of like, no, like we treat women really, really well. They're involved in this and their meetings and da, da, da. Um, So the difference between that and the difference that you are seeing in these community organizations that you're taking a part in where you're actually an equal at the board. Just break that down for us. Well, the, I went, I'm part of a organization where we work to serve um, our neighbors without houses. And in that organization, there's many different faiths represented. And so there's a seventh day Advent, a man from the seventh day Adventist church, a man from St. Matthew's Episcopal church, um, So, and then some women from Catholic or St. Matthew's or like just different. So we're really a diverse group, but when I participate in those councils, I feel a really different, that my opinion and my voice is heard in a different way. I feel like an equal at the table and I don't know all of the factors that make it feel that way. I don't, it's not just my observation though. Like it's tangible. I just can't wrap my words around it my tongue around it like I don't Mm. I just feel listened to Mm. and I Mm. feel like my input is thought about and calculated and that we make decisions together as a group in a different way where when I participated in councils within the church the input is received it's either considered or not considered. It kind of depends on the leader, I think, and perhaps their biases or experiences or priorities. Um, Cause I've had times where I felt like my input was valued and heard and factored. And I've had other times where I felt like I was running up against a brick wall in trying to share yeah. something that I felt really strong, like even um, testimony, not testimony, but like inspiration about and it just didn't feel like I was being heard at all. So I've had a variety of experiences, some good, some not as well. And the, you know, different leaders who involved me and incorporated me in decision-making in a different way, but there's always this feeling of being presided over and knowing that in the end, ultimately they will decide because they have the keys or the stewardship to make that decision. And that that just is a really different feeling. And I think that it impacts the way people interact with or treat you when that is where they're coming from, when that's their framework. And it's good people who are doing good things, right? It's all, so that I'm not necessarily criticizing the people, just the framework that they are operating within lends itself to treating women as subordinates because we are not ever on equal terms. And so one of my um, opportunities to serve is uh, through a refugee project where there's a woman who's called under one of the Area Authority 70s. So that's like pretty high up. You know, there's like 
bishops over a congregation and then stake presidents over a group of congregations. And then there's area authority over a group of stakes, right? I think that's kind of the hierarchy. So her calling is underneath the Mm -hmm. authority of one of these higher up. And it was interesting because we had a meeting and some other men were invited to participate in this meeting. And to me, it was really apparent in the way that they interacted with her and interacted with that council that they weren't used to serving under a woman. Do you know what I mean? Like they mm-hmm. got right in there and they were trying to problem solve and they were trying to identify action items when really she was the one who had called this meeting and was the leader of this effort. And so for me, it was it was her responsibility to identify those action items, not his. And I just it like brought to my attention, I was like, oh, there is only one place in the church where men serve under women. And that's in the primary. That's the only place. Mm where men are ever mm-hmm. under the authority or leadership of a woman. And I just, yeah, it, it doesn't sit well with me that that's their only experience with deferring to the authority of a woman who has the opportunity to be the ultimate decision maker. And, and to have that imbalance seems, well, it's just something that's not for me. It's a path that I don't want for my daughters yeah. or my sons for that matter. I I yeah. want a more egalitarian world where we really truly partner together in a different yeah. way than I see uh, in a hierarchy like that. Perfect. Thank you. Beautiful. Okay. Kira, re- I, I can't reword the question exactly how I dropped it. So do you remember the question? <laughs> I don't remember the question and it was so beautiful to me. Are you kidding me? Do it was something about the... <laughs> About finding my voice in the ways that were most beautiful. I can't remember. Yeah. What, yeah. What, what parts of that? So, I mean, like, I think you've already kind of hit on one, right. Being able to go into, um, you know, a council type of setting and using your voice in a way that is, you're not apologizing for it. And you're also not having to feel like you are out of line or out of place and feeling like an equal at the table. And, um, so I think you already hit upon part of that, uh, are there other parts? Cause I know, I mean, there's so much and we've been going for two hours and barely scratched the surface of the troubles and the journey and the reality of all of this. So in like your marriage or as a parent or just as yourself, right. Just honoring yourself, what parts of your voice have you been able to have access to that you're just can't imagine living without again? Maybe, maybe I am, maybe I'm placing my own feelings onto you. Cause that is definitely how I feel about like, I, you know, okay, listen, here's, here's the thing. I, we have a missionary friend who I'll tell you her name afterwards. Um, we have a missionary friend and on the way out, we talked just briefly and I said something, I don't even remember what I said. But her response was, and she and it was she didn't mean to be mean or cruel. It was it, she was just kind of laughing, but it hit different. And she was like, of all the things about you, like I've never known you to not speak your mind. And I, it hit me so wrong because I was like, you have no idea. Like I always had that reputation of yeah, being the one that always said the things and being the one who was the problem, right? And the, the reality was, is I was only saying like 30% of, or like saying what I just couldn't keep down anymore. 
I'm like, there was so much that I was constantly silencing and pushing. And so for me, being able to integrate the fullness of who I am and the fullness of my voice um, is something I will never, ever let go of again, because I have found I have found the power in it. And by not silencing it, I'm able to learn how to use it and wield it with kindness and love instead of it like exploding out of me out of frustration. So, you know, for me, I just I honor so much what I have found and I love it so much. I just can't ever imagine letting it go. So I I might be pushing that experience on you when I ask this question. Well, I thought your question was really beautiful, but I don't know if I have an answer for it because I think I'm still finding my voice I'm still in that exploration but I find that I like I can't sit silent anymore in certain situations like I though I met with um one of the counselors in our state presidency and he was talking about how our ward is really struggling our congregation and you know kind of hinting at me going back and I just was like I just don't think I can participate in that space in a way that's comfortable for the community anymore do you know what I mean <laughs> like I, I love that you said community and not you well because I feel comfortable in that space I went to church with a college friend this past week and sang the hymns and listened to the talks but if it was a Sunday school lesson I think I would have a harder time not raising my hand and pointing out the things that feel wrong. Do you know what I mean? And and that's not yeah. comfortable in that yeah. setting. And so that I just, you know, finding a space where I feel like, oh, okay, I am learning how to be comfortable with not being Molly Mormon. You know what I mean? Like coming yeah. to a place where I feel comfortable not meeting those expectations. And that's been a powerful journey to to realize that, well, my sister-in-law said it in a really beautiful way because I've I've been so tied up in other people's expectations and respect, but she she was talking about a, a fellow family member and she was like, you know, I had to come to a place where I decided and rem- reminded myself, I don't respect the way that they make their decisions in this thing. And so I don't have to invest emotional energy in their opinion of me on this matter because mm-hmm. We don't make our decisions in the same way. We don't share the same values on this topic. And and so to be able to like look at my world, my community, and be able to differentiate, like that is a huge skill that I didn't gain in my family. There wasn't differentiation. We were kind of an extension of mom and dad, right? And and what we're doing yeah. is to bring honor to them, return with honor to our families, return to God with honor. It was all an extension of somebody else, a different entity. Yeah. And so to be able to have differentiation where I can step aside from that community and say, I still share all of these things. I still have so much love. Service is something that I feel like I gained from the church, a strong testimony of, and that I'm carrying into my new path. And I'll hold on to that and treasure and be grateful for the church providing a foundation in that. But I don't have to invest energy in valuing these other things, these other pieces that used to be so important, these other minute of obedience that I got really wrapped up in that now I feel like my journey is focused on my core values and they don't have to be the same as any other individual, even my husband. Like we can have... Of course, we have a lot in common, but like to that, just that idea of differentiation, I think is really powerful one that I'm learning to embrace. And 
I don't want to let go of that. Ah, perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having the courage to talk with me and everyone today. I know it is such a scary thing and I am just so grateful for all the things that you shared because they were very impactful. So thank you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider taking the time to like, rate, review, and share. Let's make sure that when someone clicks on this podcast, that our voices are the loudest. Love you all. We are, we are